Section 53 of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Fifth part of Chapter 11. The old life began again. After sleeping for twelve hours in her closet, Nana behaved very well for a week or so. She had patched herself a modest little dress, and wore a cap with the strings tied under her chignon. Seized, indeed, with remarkable fervour, she declared she would work at home, where one could earn what one liked without hearing any nasty workroom talk, and she procured some work and installed herself at a table, getting up at five o'clock in the morning on the first few days to roll her sprigs of violets. But when she had delivered a few gross, she stretched her arms and yawned over her work with her hands cramped, for she had lost her knack of stem-rolling and suffocated shut up like this at home after allowing herself so much open-air freedom during the last six months. Then the glue dried, the petals and the green paper got stained with grease, and the flower-dealer came three times in person to make a row and claim his spoiled materials. Nana idled along, constantly getting a hiding from her father and wrangling with her mother morning and night, quarrels in which the two women flung horrible words at each other's heads. It couldn't last. The twelfth day she took herself off, with no more luggage than her modest dress on her back and her cap perched over one ear. The Lorilleur, who had pursed their lips on hearing of her return and repentance, nearly died of laughter now. Second performance, Eclipse number 2, all aboard for the train for Salazar, the prison hospital for streetwalkers. No, it was really too comical. Nana took herself off in such an amusing style. Well, if the Coupeau wanted to keep her in the future, they must shut her up in a cage. In the presence of other people, the Coupeau pretended they were very glad to be rid of the girl, though in reality they were enraged. However, rage can't last forever, and soon they heard without even blinking that Nana was seen in the neighborhood. Gervaise, who accused her of doing it to enrage them, set herself above the scandal. She might meet her daughter on the street, she said. She wouldn't even dirty her hand to cuff her. Yes, it was all over. She might have seen her lying in the gutter, dying on the pavement, and she would have passed by without even admitting that such a hussy was her own child. Nana, meanwhile, was enlivening the dancing halls of the neighborhood. She was known from the ball of Queen Blanche to the great hall of Folly. When she entered the Elysee Montmartre, folks climbed onto the tables to see her do the sniffling crawfish during the pastorelle. As she had twice been turned out of the Chateau Rouge Hall, she walked outside the door waiting for someone she knew to escort her inside. The black ball on the other boulevard and the Grand Turk in the Rue des Poissonniers were respectable places where she only went when she had some fine dress on. Of all the jumping places in the neighborhood, however, those she most preferred were the Hermitage Ball in a damp courtyard and Robert's Ball in the Impasse de Cadran two dirty little halls lighted up with half a dozen oil lamps, and kept very informally, everyone pleased and everyone free, 
so much so that the men and their girls kissed each other at their ease in the dances without being disturbed. Nana had ups and downs, perfect transformations, now tricked out like a stylish woman, and now all dirt. Ah, she had a fine life. On several occasions the Coupeau fancied they saw her in some shady dive. They turned their backs and decamped in another direction so as not to be obliged to recognize her. They didn't care to be laughed at by a whole dancing hall again for the sake of bringing such a dolt home. One night, as they were going to bed, however, someone knocked at the door. It was Nana, who matter-of-factly came to ask for a bed, and in what a state. Mon Dieu! Her head was bare, her dress in tatters, and her boots full of holes. Such a toilette as might have made the police run her in and take her off to the depot. Naturally enough, she received a hiding, and then she gluttonously fell on a crust of stale bread and went to sleep worn out, with a last mouthful between her teeth. Then this sort of life continued. As soon as she was somewhat recovered, she would go off, and not a sight or sound of her. Weeks or months would pass, and she would suddenly appear with no explanation. The Coupeau got used to these comings and goings. Well, as long as she didn't leave the door open, what could you expect? There was only one thing that really bothered Gervaise. This was to see her daughter come home in a dress with a train and a hat covered with feathers. No, she couldn't stomach this display. Nana might indulge in riotous living as she chose, but when she came home to her mother's she ought to dress like a work girl. The dresses with trains caused quite a sensation in the house. The Laurier sneered. Lantier, whose mouth sneered, turned the girl round to sniff at her delicious aroma. The Bosch had forbidden Pauline to associate with this baggage in her frippery, and Gervaise was also angered by Nana's exhausted slumber when, after one of her adventures, she slept till noon with her chignon undone and still full of hairpins, looking so white and breathing so feebly that she seemed to be dead. Her mother shook her five or six times in the course of the morning, threatening to throw a jug full of water over her. The sight of this handsome lazy girl, half-naked and besotted with wine, exasperated her, as she saw her lying there. Sometimes Nana opened an eye, closed it again, and then stretched herself out all the more. One day, after reproaching her with the life she led, and asking her if she had taken on an entire battalion of soldiers, Gervaise put her threat into execution, to the extent of shaking her dripping hand over Nana's body. Quite infuriated, the girl pulled herself up in the sheet and cried out, "'That's enough, Mama. It would be better not to talk of men. You did as you liked, and now I do the same.' "'What? What?' stammered the mother. "'Yes, I never spoke to you about it, for it didn't concern me. But you didn't used to be very fussy. I often saw you when we lived at the shop sneaking off as soon as Papa started snoring. So just shut up. You shouldn't have set me the example.' Gervaise remained pale with trembling hands, turning round without knowing what she was about, while Nana flattened on her breast, embraced her pillow with both arms, and subsided into the torpor of her leaden slumber. Coupeau growled, no longer sane enough to think of launching out a whack. He was altogether losing his mind. And really there was no need to call him an unprincipled father, for liquor had deprived him of all consciousness of good and evil. 
Now it was a settled thing. He wasn't sober once in six months. Then he was laid up and had to go into Santa Anne Hospital, a pleasure trip for him. The Laurier said that the Duke of Bowel Twister had gone to visit his estates. At the end of a few weeks he left the asylum, repaired and set together again, and then he began to pull himself to bits once more, till he was down on his back and needed another mending. In three years he went seven times to Saint Anne in this fashion. The neighborhood said that his cell was kept ready for him, but the worst of the matter was that this obstinate tippler demolished himself more and more each time, so that from relapse to relapse one could foresee the final tumble, the last cracking of this shaky cask, all the hoops of which were breaking away one after the other. At the same time he forgot to improve in appearance, a perfect ghost to look at. The poison was having terrible effects. By dint of imbibing alcohol his body shrank up like the embryos displayed in glass jars in chemical laboratories. When he approached a window you could see through his ribs so skinny had he become. Those who knew his age, only forty years just gone, shuddered when he passed by, bent and unsteady, looking as old as the streets themselves. And the trembling of his hands increased. The right one danced to such an extent that sometimes he had to take his glass between both fists to carry it to his lips. Oh, that cursed trembling! It was the only thing that worried his addled brains. You could hear him growling ferocious insults against those hands of his. This last summer, during which Nana usually came home to spend her nights after she had finished knocking about, was especially bad for Coupeau. His voice changed entirely, as if liquor had set a new music in his throat. He became deaf in one ear. Then in a few days his sight grew dim, and he had to clutch hold of the stair railings to prevent himself from falling. As for his health, he had abominable headaches and dizziness. All on a sudden he was seized with acute pains in his arms and legs. He turned pale, was obliged to sit down, and remained on a chair witless for hours. Indeed, after one such attack, his arm remained paralyzed for the whole day. He took to his bed several times. He rolled himself up and hid himself under the sheet, breathing hard and continuously like a suffering animal. Then the strange scenes of St. Anne began again. Suspicious and nervous, worried with a burning fever, he rolled about in a mad rage, tearing his blouse and biting the furniture with his convulsed jaws or else he sank into a great state of emotion, complaining like a child, sobbing and lamenting, because nobody loved him. One night, when Gervaise and Nana returned home together, they were surprised not to find him in his bed. He had laid the bolster in his place, and when they discovered him, hiding between the bed and the wall, his teeth were chattering, and he related that some men had come to murder him. The two women were obliged to put him to bed again, and quiet him like a child. Coupeau knew only one remedy, to toss down a pint of spirits, a whack in his stomach which set him on his feet again. This was how he doctored his gripes of a morning. His memory had left him long ago, his brain was empty, and he no sooner found himself on his feet than he poked fun at illness. He had never been ill. Yes, he had got to the point when a fellow kicks the bucket declaring that he's quite well, and his wits were going a wool-gathering in other respects, too. When Nana came home after gadding about for six weeks or so, 
he seemed to fancy she had returned from doing some errand in the neighborhood. Often, when she was hanging on an acquaintance's arm, she met him and laughed at him without his recognizing her. In short, he no longer counted for anything. She might have sat down on him if she had been at a loss for a chair. When the first frosts came, Nana took herself off once more under the pretense of going to the fruiterers to see if there were any baked pears. She scented winter and didn't care to let her teeth chatter in front of the fireless stove. The coupeau had called her no good because they had waited for the pears. No doubt she would come back again. The other winter she stayed away three weeks to fetch her father two sous worth of tobacco. But the months went by and the girl did not show herself. This time she must have indulged in a hard gallop. When June arrived she did not even turn up with the sunshine. Eventually it was all over. She had found a new meal ticket somewhere or other. One day, when the coupeau were totally broke, they sold Nana's iron bedstead for six francs, which they drank together at Saint Juan. The bedstead had been in their way. One morning in July, Virginie called to Gervaise, who was passing by, and asked her to lend a hand in washing up, for Lantier had entertained a couple of friends on the day before. And while Gervaise was cleaning up the plates and dishes, greasy with the traces of the spread, the hatter, who was still digesting in the shop, suddenly called out, "'Say, uh, I saw Nana the other day.' Virginie, who was seated at the counter, looked very careworn in front of the jars and drawers, which were already three parts emptied, jerked her head furiously. She restrained herself so as not to say too much, but really it was angering her. Lantier was seeing Nana often. Oh, she was by no means sure of him. He was a man to do much worse than that. When a fancy for a woman came into his head, Madame Larat, very intimate just then with Virginie, who confided in her, had that moment entered the shop, and hearing Lantier's remark, she pouted ridiculously and asked, What do you mean you saw her? On the street here, answered the hatter, who felt highly flattered, and began to laugh and twirl his moustache. She was in a carriage and I was floundering on the pavement. Really, it was so, I swear it. There's no use denying it. The young fellows of position who are on friendly terms with her are terribly lucky. His eyes had brightened, and he turned towards Gervaise, who was standing in the rear of the shop, wiping a dish. Yes, she was in a carriage, and wore such a stylish dress, I didn't recognize her. She looked so much like a lady of the upper set, with her white teeth and her face as fresh as a flower. It was she who waved her glove to me. She has caught a count, I believe. Well, she's launched for good. She can afford to do without any of us. She's head over heels in happiness, the little beggar. What a love of a little kitten. Oh, you've no idea what a little kitten she is. Gervaise was still wiping the same plate, although it had long since been clean and shiny. Virginie was reflecting, anxious, about a couple of bills which fell due on the morrow, and which she didn't know how to pay. Whilst Lantier, stout and fat, perspiring the sugar he fed off, ventured his enthusiasm for well-dressed little hussies. The shop, which was already three parts eaten up, smelt of ruin. Yes, there was only a few more burnt almonds to nibble, a little more barley sugar to suck to clean the poisson's business out. 
Suddenly, on the pavement over the way, he perceived the policeman who was on duty, passed by, all buttoned up with his sword dangling by his side, and this made him all the gayer. He compelled Virginie to look at her husband. "'Dear me,' he muttered, "'Batang looks fine this morning. Just look how stiff he walks. He must have stuck a glass eye in his back to surprise people.' When Gervaise went back upstairs, she found Coupeau seated on the bed, in the torpid state induced by one of his attacks. He was looking at the window-panes with his dim, expressionless eyes. She sat herself down on a chair, tired out, her hands hanging beside her dirty skirt, and for a quarter of an hour she remained in front of him without saying a word. "'I've had some news,' she muttered at last. "'Your daughter's been seen. Yes, your daughter's precious, stylish, and hasn't any more need of you. She's awfully happy she is. Huh, mon dieu, I'd give a great deal to be in her place.' Coupeau was still staring at the window-pane, but suddenly he raised his ravaged face and stammered with an idiotic laugh. "'Well, my little lamb, I am not stopping you. You're not yet so bad-looking when you wash yourself, as folks say. However old a pot may be, it ends by finding its lid. And, after all, I wouldn't care if it only buttered our bread.' End of chapter 11 Recording by David Lazarus